0: Hi, this is Mary H.K. Choi, and you're listening to Hey, Cool Job, a podcast about jobs. My next guest is Hua Su, an author and a regular contributor to The New Yorker. He's also an associate professor of English and the director of the American Studies program at Vassar and serves on the board of the Asian American Writers Workshop. I'm in love with my Hey. Hey, how's it going?
1: Pretty good. Wild day, but uh, it's really awesome to be here.
0: Yeah, it's definitely like dumping snow, and everyone was very scared about the subway. But we're all here in one piece, which is great. Um, Or in three pieces, because we're three people. Um, So, officially, you may be the most highbrow-sounding person (laughs) who's been on the show so far. Um,
1: Definitely the most boring, I think.
0: No, 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 no. Actually... The funny thing about highbrow or anybrow is that your your book, A Floating Chinaman, Fantasy and Failure Across the Pacific, was actually on like the New York Magazine Approval Matrix as highbrow brilliant.
1: (laughs) How did you feel about that? That felt incredible. I mean, that was one of those things where, and you too are a published author, right?
0: Well, soon to be, but yes.
1: Yeah. And I feel like there are certain things you see sort of coming up in the world and you're like, oh, that'd be really cool. And the Approval Matrix was one of those things where I thought if I could somehow sneak this academic <laughs> book into the approval matrix, that would be better than getting reviewed or something, you know, so it felt amazing.
0: I'm sure. I was, I've been on the approval matrix too, but I was lowbrow really, <laughs> 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 And it was for recapping House of Style on MTV. So it's a kind of a different thing. But the thing I wanted to say was that I feel like you're kind of low-key all-brow brilliant because you do write some pretty low adjacent stuff like you've written about like the kardashians or like sports related kardashian adjacent
1: interests so all sports is (laughs) lowbrow basically
0: no i feel like well actually no but your voice for grantland stuff is totally different Mm -hmm. it's like a lot more just like stream of consciousness and just like i don't know it's it's funny like to think about you having this like academic life and then writing for grantland for everything about like um Like a Tim Dog eulogy, for example. (laughs) And
1: and it turned out he wasn't actually dead, (laughs) which was kind of embarrassing.
0: Right. It's amazing what penicillin on wax will do for your health. (laughs) Um, Okay, so we're both really old is something that I've established. Um, When people ask you what you do, do you tend to say you're a professor or a writer and why? Uh,
1: I, I guess it depends on who I'm talking to, but I usually probably talk about teaching more because... That's the more stable job I have.
0: It's like the most jobly job. So you're like, you'll know what this is. I think
1: that's the thing where if, if everything, I don't know, like if uh, publishing ended tomorrow, like I would still be teaching. So I think it's easier to, that's where like the benefits come from, to be mm. very Asian about it. So.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, the health benefits, yeah. the cachet. Um, yeah, but, like, you also write for, like, the most blue chip people ever. Like, the New Yorker is so serious. Like, that font. The fact that, like, focusing has two S's. Like, that place is so serious. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I actually I actually was just editing something earlier today with focusing in it with two S's, and I was like, that looks really weird, but I guess that's just how we do it.
0: That's how much swag they have. They're just like, this is how, this is what it is for us. And you're like, oh, okay. You know, like, was there any, like, learning curve in terms of, like, getting used to the way the New Yorker works? Like, they have, like, a certain way that they like to tell stories.
1: Um, You know, so I've been freelancing, kind of writing on and off for uh, maybe, like, 17 years And during that time, I've written for a lot of different publications, worked with tons of great editors. And weirdly, it's a lot easier for me to just kind of merge with the New Yorker style because it's a lot easier to mimic. Uh, Like when I was writing for Grantland, I actually had a really difficult time keeping up because there were so many people whose voices were just, I think, way more interesting than mine. And so I think it just kind of pushed me as a writer and it was like a really interesting challenge. But it's a lot easier to write. The kinds of things I do for the New Yorker where I understand the like the language and sort of how ideas flow more. Does that make sense?
0: No, totally. But that's interesting. I don't think it would ever occur to me that you writing for the Grantland was actually more difficult or challenging or stretched you in a different way. Because for me, I'm all like super voice, like glitter, like, Mm -hmm. ah, don't ask me any questions. (laughs) Like there's no exposition or facts. Ha. And then I'm out. You know, and that's why it's like 800 to 1100 words is like my like spot Mm -hmm. but yeah i mean like the new yorker relies on they never let you back into facts everything is like pretty linear i mean Mm -hmm. not like not like they won't like you know just plunge into a piece or anything like that because the writing largely is like beautiful but it never occurred to me that like almost being casual and like breathless and like having all those like clauses in your sentences just like tripping up over each other would be harder for you.
1: It was way harder oh. because, um, you know, at Grantland, and I really loved being part of that, um, you know, the, we would do these things like shoot around or the triangle where it would just be people riffing over what happened the previous night. And writing like a 200 word blurb was just really, it was, it like caused me way more stress than probably it's it, it, would, it would make sense, right? Because mm. it was just sort of like 200 words on like a game you went to. But knowing that like Jason Concepcion or Chris Ryan or all these people who have these, um, you know, they're just like effortlessly hilarious. It was like a really daunting challenge. Whereas I think, you know, having been in academia, having taught for a while, like I'm used to having to explain stuff to people or having to help people understand things are kind of complex or more difficult. So that's a lot of what I think I do at The New Yorker. Not necessarily that it's just like explainers, Mm. but I think a lot of it is just trying to unpack something and just sort of um, kind of re-articulate to someone. And I think that's just a different challenge than what Grantland was.
0: No, it's incredibly inclusive versus like kind of...
1: The New Yorker is inclusive? Yeah,
0: I mean, it's it's like inclusive if you have an intellectual curiosity about certain, you know, things and whatever... Um, and a type of temperament and perhaps a little bit of walking around money. But
1: yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's what I meant too. I didn't mean like,
0: (laughs) so you grew up in the Bay. I did. What were you like as a kid and what were you into?
1: Um, so I was born in Illinois, lived in Texas for a while. Shit. Where in Texas? Uh, Plano.
0: Oh shit. Like the Frito Lake town. Like is it? Yeah.
1: I don't, I, I know nothing about it Mm. other than, um, it was in Friday night lights.
0: It's also, I think, where you is from, but continue. Wow. Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's wild. Um, I'm having, like, real, a real sliding doors moment now. <laughs> um, <laughs> my
0: hair is short in this one and not in the other. Yeah, totally. Um, so Plano, Texas. And, and then
1: Richardson, which I guess okay. is near Dallas.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean.
1: I have no idea. I mean, Texas is huge. Yeah, it is.
0: But so you were in Texas for how long?
1: Long enough to insist that my parents call me Luke. And, like, want cowboy boots. I guess I started talking with a bit of a Southern drawl. Did you y'all everyone to death? I still y'all people just because I went to college in Texas and
0: part of high school. <laughs> in fact, my favorite sort of um, mashup is the did y'all, the whole j'all mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. of it. That's yeah. good. It's efficient. You yeah, know? totally.
1: Um, but I think my parents just wanted to change. And I think they also... And, and it's always hard to tell because I think your parents are constantly revising the narrative of, of course. Like the struggle or whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But they would always talk about how they were a little disturbed by how Texan I was getting at a young age. So they were like, oh, we'll just move to California since there's more Asian people. There's more job opportunities. So we were in Southern California for a while, but I spent most of my life in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Cupertino. Yeah.
0: Oh, oh, so which, your dad was in tech. Yeah. Okay.
1: But... Like, the entire time I lived there, nobody knew what Cupertino was, so it's still very weird for me to say, like, oh, I'm from a place that everyone now knows because their phone. Right. Like, I used like to say a- I was from San Jose, and people from San Jose were like, you're not actually from San Jose. <laughs> but now everyone knows Cupertino, so.
0: Yeah, it's because it's like the default iPhone time zone. You're like, what the fuck, man? Yeah. <laughs> like, um. So, but what were you like as a kid when you were growing up in, like, so were your formative years spent in the Bay Area? What is that? I have no
1: idea. I was just
0: <laughs> as I was saying, I was like you're you're going to ask me a follow-up on this. Like what were you a teen or preteen?
1: Yeah, like probably I don't know, like 9 to 18. So. Okay.
0: So that's yeah, solidly That's, that's like, formative, yeah.
1: right? Um I don't know what I was like. I think I was I was an only child, so I was pretty in my own world, I guess. Like I was really into listening to the radio and reading and stuff, but I don't really have any sense of like like, I don't remember having, like, huge aspirations. Like, socially, or what? I mean, I think I was just... It was hard to imagine what, um, like, leaving California or doing all those things, you know? Things that I've done now, like, I don't think I thought as a kid, these are things that I will one day do. Huh. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I think it's just because, you know, my parents were... My dad was an engineer, uh, my mom stayed at home with me, and... Around when I was in middle school, I think my dad moved to Taiwan for work, which was something that like tons of kids in my area, like their dads, went to Taiwan to work. And so, like you would go to the airport for spring break, and you would see like all the other kids from school, like also on their way to visit their dads for that week. And so, I think there are things I wanted to do. Like I really like writing, I liked debating, things like that, but it's not like my parents knew anyone who did that stuff. Mm. So it just seemed like this this whole other world. So like I was really into magazines, I was really into music, but it's it sounds so cliche, but you just don't see people like you doing stuff like that. And your parents are accomplished. They don't know anyone who does that. So it just seems like this this world you'll never really enter into, you know?
0: No, totally. So my parents had very like, First generation immigrant jobs like they both worked in the service industry when we moved to America. And so for us, the narrative was always like you had to do better than them. And that Uh was like a whole thing. So like but but even by that, it was like, so I do know what you mean. Like if your parents are accomplished, if your dad is like literally an engineer and working in tech, it must be like huh, it would be super weird for me to then be like, I want to play bass, you know, like <laughs>
1: right, yeah. it
0: would t- it would require as much like the expectation is that I would do something completely different from my parents. And that could be potentially anything. But was there an expectation from your parents for you to go into these like super white collar type situations?
1: No, actually, my parents were were super chill in a way that I think A lot of my friends in middle school and high school, their parents were kind of what would later be called like tiger parents. Mm -hmm. But my parents were never really like that at all.
0: Why? Were they just like burnouts? What happened?
1: I have no idea. Like my dad, my parents moved to the United States. They met here in the early 70s. So they were both in graduate school. And I think my dad just spent a lot of time when he should have been finishing his PhD. He was like a physicist. Uh, he was casual, <laughs> do, like he was doing a lot of like political stuff. He really got into like American music. I think he he took a really long time to finish and he never went into academia, which of which was his dream. And he ended up like working as an engineer. And, w- and it was a good time to do that. And so I think he just I don't know, I think they just never really had a sense that figuring out a plan and following it from like the, the time you're 14 was really going to like do anything stick yeah
0: do you speak to your parents
1: in English um yeah mostly nowadays really yeah
0: do you speak fluent Mandarin
1: um um no okay I mean I think there have been moments in life when I've had a pretty good feel for it yeah but you know I just don't really do it as much now so like when I was driving my my in-law's back from the airport the other night it was just it was a real struggle
0: yeah it was the erosion is quick
1: yeah it was just deeply humiliating. you know <laughs>
0: <laughs> no but that's wild um but yeah so i have to speak korean at home at my house but i never argue in mm, korean because yeah. i'm just like why would i just lose you know yeah, so totally. it's like <laughs> i definitely <laughs> interject the, mo- the more poisonous invectives yeah. <laughs> um so who I mean, you write a lot about pop culture, but who was like the first person you stand for where you were like, oh, my God, like you are an icon to me. And it can be like any anyone like sports, music, actor, whatever.
1: Wow, that's a huge question. I know. but like, The, um. the, the, okay, but
0: the, the, the thing is, the trick is answer with the first person that like popped into your head
1: yeah, clearly no one jumped in, jumped in my head. Um, I don't know. What would you say? Kate Moss. Really? Yeah. That was, you, you've thought the, about this a lot.
0: Well, I made up the question to ask, yeah. so I could <laughs>
1: think about it beforehand. I mean, I think my dad used to, um, you know, like he was really into music. Yeah. So when he was living in Taiwan, when he was living at home, like he would, like the thing we would do is we would go to Tower Records after dinner. And he would buy, like, a bunch of CDs. I could buy, like, one CD. and
0: That's huge because CDs were so expensive when we were yeah, growing up. Yeah, they were. So that's actually really cool that your dad was, like, kind of down like that.
1: Yeah, and so he was always reading, like, Rolling Stone and Spin. And so I think just conceptually, I always thought it was really cool to be able to write these things that my dad read. Mm. Um, so I don't know. Like, I think... When I was in middle school, I remember on career day, this writer from Rolling Stone came and talked about his his job. Was he white? He was. Lol, it,
0: even that question. And continue. his name was
1: um his name was Chris. Um, Duh. And that's that's the all I remember. <laughs> and if you Google like like Rolling Stone writer '90s Chris, like fifty people come
0: exactly. Up.
1: But and I think he was. But I think it was funny because he was really trying to just floss. So even though we were all in seventh grade, he was like, yeah, I was just hanging out with this guy like Ethan Hawke or something. And nobody knew who that was at the time. Right. But I just thought it was the most interesting job that I heard of that day. So <laughs> I didn't necessarily stand for him, but I just thought the idea of being a writer was really interesting. I just had no idea like how one became right, a writer. Right, you right, know? Right. And so I think I just looked up to my teachers instead.
0: Right on. Did you hang out with Asians when you were a kid at this, at this time of your life?
1: I mean, Cupertino, the South Bay in general is, it's pretty Asian. I I think it's way more now. Like I think now it's, there are places like Cupertino, Irvine, where it's like 70% in high schools. I think when I was going to high school, it was still like, I don't know, like maybe 20 to 30%. So I did, but I, I think it was still early enough in the nineties where things hadn't completely splintered off. Like balkanized. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Like my high school was actually pretty enjoyable. Like people Weird. Kind
0: of, Why? What?
1: <laughs> it's really it's really strange. People kind of got along. And I know that there are people who didn't enjoy high school. I mean like at my high school. Right, right, right. But um
0: I'm like yeah. speak for everyone you went to high school with. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but um yeah it's really strange. Like I wrote about this last year, like the the homecoming king when I was a junior was Ben Cho, um, who recently passed away, you know, like the fashion designer.
0: Oh, shit. I remember I read that. Yeah. And like Ben Cho was huge for me for New York being like, oh, my God, like there's like the coolest, like and also fashion cool and yeah. also Korean. Yeah. That yeah, was yeah. like wild for me.
1: Yeah. And so I think like, I mean, backing up to the question you asked before, like, I think I really looked up to... In a weird way like other people at my school who are just doing interesting things like i used to make a zine when i was in high school and i just looked up to like the kids who were a little bit older than me who had like way better taste in music like ben or like people like there was this guy in my french class who was in this band called the janitors against apartheid and i thought i thought he and that band were the fucking coolest you right know? and
0: 'Cause the name was like crucial.
1: Yeah. 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 And I just thought it was like really great that people in this town that was like stereotypically really boring were just doing interesting stuff or weren't listening to the same same stuff as everyone else.
0: Yeah. That's I I mean, I think about your life and I'm like, oh my God, your dad reads Rolling Stone, your homecoming king is like a legendary Korean. Like that would have made me such a different person, I think. Like you're really lucky.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that I've been lucky, like career-wise and sort of socially. And that's actually why, I don't know, like I feel, I think about that all the time, actually, just how lucky I was to actually look back on those formative years and feel like, I don't know that anyone like understood me specifically, but I didn't feel like profoundly misunderstood.
0: Or like just like systemically oppressed.
1: Yeah. Like I felt like, I mean, I, yeah, I don't think at the time I would have had that language to say that, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think I felt like, I think there were things I wanted to do and I didn't know how to do them, but it just seemed like the people around me were people that kind of interested and inspired me.
0: So did you spend summers in Taiwan because your dad was there?
1: Yeah. What, like pretty what, much every summer.
0: What was that like? Did you have like FOMO for what was going on at home? Like, did it feel like this weird, like almost like... I don't know, like, punctuated equilibrium where yeah. you're, like, evolving differently and...
1: Kind Dude, of like- I hated it. Really? I, okay. I hated it. What about it? I mean, it was the FOMO thing because as an only child, you know, like, I did, had no one else to hang out with. Like, sure. I hung out with my mom a lot when I was growing up. And, you know, summertime is when a lot of cool stuff happens. Like, there's just, like, more... Just weird, wavy, yeah, it's like cool stuff. Yeah. yeah. And um, I just remember... I remember one time, like a bunch of friends came to like see us off as we were leaving for the airport and then they all like rode off on their rollerblades. And Damn I just, <laughs> it, <man>. yeah, totally. <laughs> and I was sitting in the car just thinking like, they're going to have so much, they're going to make so many memories without me, you know? Yeah. So, you know, looking back, it's ridiculous because it was fucking cool to spend so much time somewhere else. And I always enjoyed it once I got there. But you know, I would just spend all my time by myself, like reading or listening to tapes. Like I didn't, I did nothing to sort of draw on the resource that was being in Taiwan.
0: But it was like pre-internet, so I kind of like understand that. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. how do you even find I mean, out I about didn't stuff like,
1: going on? But I didn't like try and make friends or like meet other kids.
0: Did you feel as though? Why were you just kind of like? Now, like, what's the point? I'm not even I don't even go here. Or was it like or was it like I'm cooler than y'all because I'm from America?
1: I think I just really wanted to continue having the American experience of like the stuff I was into. So, yeah, I just wasn't that curious about the lives of like the kids who were there, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, my parents always talked about Korea in terms of punishment. It was like punitive. It's like, you don't shape up. We're moving you to Korea. And so it always kind of had this specter of like, oh, no, not Korea. And in fact, I used to spend summers there because they would send me to um, summer school and I would take like speech and like art classes and a lot of math class. And so, yeah, I mean, for me personally, Korea was kind of just like just humid and like, different and like really hard because i was literally in class all the time but um
1: i mean plus your parents made it sound like
0: yeah they sucked at it (laughs) (laughs) but it was delicious
1: which i appreciate that's great
0: yeah um how often do you go to taiwan now
1: now we try and go uh, i don't know like once every couple years Mm -hmm. like my um my wife's family still lives there so and it's 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 a super underrated place
0: no it's it's Well, I mean, I feel like for certain circles, it's accurately rated in terms of like, you know, how much stuff is going on right now.
1: I just mean that I encounter a lot of people who really fetishize like China.
0: Well, because it's like looming and people are like, you know. Yeah.
1: And I'm like, no, you should go to Taiwan. Like, Taiwan is actually way more fun. Well, that's also
0: the most Taiwanese thing to say about
1: China versus (laughs) You're right. You're right. That's true. (laughs)
0: Um, Would you ever drop? Zeke, your kid off in Taiwan to be like, here, have a culturally immersive experience, and then oh, be like, totally, Peace. yeah, really,
1: yeah, I would totally do that.
0: Why? Well, I mean, to
1: have a summer off, yeah, that's true. I mean, not you mean for him or for me? For
0: <laughs> I was talking about him, but I see, I see both sides. Got to hear both sides. I think,
1: yeah, I mean, I think that I think when you're young, you just can't really process like what's actually formative and influential. Yeah, true. And you think the wrong things are like. I thought that seeing Wayne's world would be this, like, life-changing experience. Like, I was thinking recently about how, like, I was watching when the Oscars were on just, like, a few days Sunday, ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, they had the montage of, like, the power of cinema. And I just thought about how, like, the first 10 movies I ever saw by myself were just horrible movies. But I th- each one I thought was going to be, like, the definitive experience of my life what like
0: romancing the stone like what kind of movies you know talking like here.
1: um wayne's world uh iron eagle 2 <laughs> um sneakers i don't know if you yeah I remember, yeah
0: big trouble in little china yeah. <laughs> yeah
1: um and so like those are the experiences i thought i was missing out on being in taiwan but being in taiwan was in retrospect it was actually really important for me did you
0: have a lot more freedom in taiwan where your where your dad was like yeah go go hang out and do stuff and then just come back whenever
1: yeah but we lived in a kind of a boring place Mm. so in in the town where my dad lived there's basically this giant like tech park Mm. that was like inside this kind of um what was was once a, a very like kind of rural town and so you can roam the campus. It was like basically a college campus just filled with companies, but there's nothing to do. Like it was incredibly boring to be like on the campus. So, I mean, I had freedom, but there's like nothing to do.
0: Right, 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 you're like this is actually hermetically sealed
1: yeah. from the outside. Like the world. only thing to do was to go to the 7-Eleven and read.
0: 7-Elevens are the best in Asia yeah. though. There's they are. trillions of them and they're all delicious and they all have everything, which is really nice. Um like even like sim cards which is very yeah. clutch. And actually I think you can pay your taxes. You can. In, you can pay a, your bills, you yeah. can pay
1: taxes, you can hail a cab, like the 711 in Asia they they're doing it right.
0: They are. You know? It's like it's like IRL Amazon. It's like <laughs> Jeff Bezos just owns your yeah. soul through
1: 711.
0: So you went to Harvard?
1: I went to Berkeley. Oh, um, for undergrad?
0: Oh, you went to Harvard for grad school. Yeah. So Berkeley's a great school. How, I loved it. What made you decide to go to there? And you were a poli... Berkeley? Yeah, you were a poli-sci major?
1: I was, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know, just close. A lot of really cool store. Like, I basically just wanted... Did you to, say stores? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Is that maybe not the, like, type of motivation that usually comes with, like, picking a college? I think
1: for, at least when I was in high school like most people who were going to college were just going to go to a public school in California because they were so good. Mm, Yeah. So it was basically like if you wanted to go to a school, like assuming you had choices, if you wanted to go to a school that had like really great sports, you'd go to UCLA. If you wanted to go to a school that had cool shows and like, you know, you could buy like records and books, like you could go to Berkeley.
0: And you went to Santa Barbara if you were like a total party animal, right?
1: Totally, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, If you were really into like, like mystical Ewok shit you could like Santa Cruz you know like there's all sorts of different settings for different like you know affinity groups right so um yeah I was just really drawn to Berkeley because I think I I think I went there for a debate tournament when I was in high school and I went into amoeba records Mm. and I was like I have to I have to live here (laughs) like I have to you're
0: like the only way way for me to research this entire store yeah because explain how big amoeba is it's like the internet in a store.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's what I imagine like an Amazon warehouse is. Like huh. it's just, it's massive. There's just stuff everywhere. Um, yeah, it's like a hanger.
0: Yeah. It's kind of amazing. Yeah. Do you still go to, do you still buy like hard copies of music? I do. Whoa. <laughs> Wild. Um, where do you store it all?
1: Um. Everywhere. No, I, I basically just have one of those like IKEA expedits mm, that a lot of people yeah, yeah. have. And totally. And I used wait, to wait, does that have, mean you
0: still collect vinyl? I do. Oh I wow. Do. I'm, okay. Okay. I'm, like
1: hitting all the stereotypical yeah, boxes yeah, yeah. here. Um and you know what's funny though is like not only do I buy records, but now I'm at this like weird middle aged like zone where I'm buying like vinyl copies of CDs I own when I was in high school.
0: Just for like the completest? Yeah, sake? just to be
1: like, oh, it's really amusing to have like the Nine Inch Nails album on like on <laughs> vinyl, you know, that I would have never considered buying as like a 14 year
0: old. I love that you're like, this um, is hilarious. <laughs> um, so what did you think you were going to be when you
1: grew up? I thought I'd be a lawyer or something. Why? I, mean, I think just, that's like the generic job that people who are bad at math and science um, and, uh, and and are good at like writing Sure. That's what they do, right? No, I say lawyers. this like, yeah. oh
0: my God, why? Except that I like <laughs> have moved so many apartments with like LSAT textbooks yeah. before I realized that this wasn't happening.
1: I mean, I think it's, this is going to sound ridiculous, but it was actually pretty recent that I stopped thinking like, oh, I could just go back and take the LSAT.
0: <laughs> Sorry, I'm not laughing at you. <laughs> so you thought that you're like, oh, this is like a thing that I could eventually do. Yeah. But, but like you have you have like nine safety jobs, basically, like you have like all the jobs, you're bogarting, you're hoarding so many good <laughs> jobs, like if you were also to become a, a lawyer. So, you know, as far as like, how you got your start in teaching? How are you like, Oh, wow, I can do this. And I don't hate it. And, and actually, like, how many days do you teach? Like, what classes do you teach?
1: So I went to grad school, because when I was in college, like I wrote a thesis. And my thesis advisor was like, oh, you're pretty good at this. If you want to go to grad school, you should... Go to Harvard. Go to American Studies in Harvard. <laughs> he was... He... This guy, like, hated Harvard. But he's like, the American Studies program is really cool, and it would appeal to someone like you. So I ended up going, and...
0: Was it hard to get in?
1: Yeah, I mean, I... It's...
0: Like, it's I'm very... picturing, like, a montage okay. where, like, I have the tiger thrill of the fight where, like, you're like... <laughs>
1: Yeah. You know. No. Well, it's very, it's really unpredictable, right? Because with the PhD program, um, like programs usually admit maybe like five to 10 people a year. And it really depends on the fit. So if there's someone at that school who does exactly the thing you want to do, teaching already, like they can mentor you. And they'll say like, I want that kid because I can create this protege, right? But if you were, if you want to do something that that school was really bad at, then even if you were this dope student, they wouldn't necessarily want you in their program because they're sort of on the hook for you for the next, like, five to ten years. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So I wanted to do—all I knew is I wanted to do something, like, Asian-American, and I didn't really know what that was. And it just so happened that at Harvard that year, like, there was this, like, assistant professor who was also, like, doing Asian-American literature, and so they thought, well, he doesn't have anyone to work with. Why don't we admit this guy who also wants to do Asian-American literature, which was me? So when I showed up and took a class with him, he's like, oh, we were supposed to meet. Like, you're the person who's supposed to work with me. I'm the person who's supposed to work with you.
0: You make it sound like Russian nesting dolls, where you're like, <laughs> same, same. Like, it kind of it was. was. Was, was like, it uh, like awesome? Was, did, it, did it feel like, oh, like I am being received and seen
1: accurately? No. You mean like, you mean that moment? Well or yeah, in when school? you were
0: Yeah, in that moment in graduate school we were like, Oh my god, like you know, like they sent the signal and here I am and it's nice.
1: It felt cool, but it was also kind of weird because I thought there's only two of us and if we don't get did it, along Did it
0: feel racist? Um not
1: not as much as I probably made it sound, <laughs> but I mean, I think what I, know, I was you trying did to kind
0: of make it seem like these like white overlords, like, Ooh, these two, and then put you guys in a bucket. <laughs> no. Well, I think,
1: I think what I was trying to convey was just that a lot of times with these programs, it just comes down to the fit. So if you, if you really fit in with what they're trying to do with the kinds of research they want to oversee, then you're going to have a leg up. So like I went to Harvard, but I actually wanted to go to like all these other programs that mm. I didn't get into. So.
0: So your you, your your safety school was Harvard is basically what you just told me.
1: <laughs> yeah. Because I didn't get into I didn't get into like NYU or the school okay. I wanted to go to. And I thought even if I don't finish this degree, which is like very possible, like PhDs are just not um, you're not really set up to like flourish and succeed (laughs) uh i thought at least i'll have the novelty of like having been at this like really crazy place for however many years Mm. so i I decided to go to harvard
0: um i would tell that story so differently (laughs) if that was my life (laughs) just to put that out there but so in terms of like teaching now like what flavor
1: of class do you teach so i ended up studying american studies and then i got a job in an english department okay and i never i am actually not like a trained literary scholar so i'm not i'm not, <laughs> I'm not, like, not gonna ask you to like show
0: your papers or <laughs> anything. you're fine here
1: <laughs> so i teach like an asian american literature class what I do teach, you
0: teach like who's in your like what books are like super important syllabus type stuff
1: um, like Maxine Hong Kingston. Okay. She's awesome. Um, Jessica Hagedorn, uh, Chong Rae Lee. I, it's pretty generic. It's like every Asian American literature class probably has shares like 70% of the same stuff. I think maybe the only things that I do differently are I teach sometimes like zines or comics. Um, for a while I would teach Tao Lin, huh. just cause I wanted to know
0: how it would be received? Yeah, like I was just really curious yeah.
1: because I taught him once, and like the entire class was like really enamored with him.
0: Oh, so it works everywhere. <laughs> Sorry, that, that just sounds bit and I didn't intend for it to. But you know what I mean? Like well, it was
1: it was interesting because I was like kind of ambivalent, but I just I just put it on the syllabus because I'm like we should read something really recent, and all these students who you know like kids who didn't say anything all semester would say like this this book like represents like how I think and how I speak. Like this is, this is like an incredible work. And so I kept teaching it year after year just to, just to see kind of just to see that happen, you know, because I didn't think that would be the book that people would gravitate toward or the author, but But there
0: is something so galvanizing when you're sitting in a classroom and you find something that like that vibrates on your frequency. It's like, and when you're young, that, that like, blows, like, splits your gourd wide apart. It's like yeah. the galaxy brain meme. You're just like, what? Yeah. So that's that's amazing. That's that's awesome.
1: Yeah, it's really... It was just weird because, like, I don't necessarily think of his writing as the kind of writing that people gravitate to because, like, it speaks to their soul, you know? Like, when I teach Woman Warrior by Maxine Hong Kingston or, like, Chang-Rae Lee's native speaker, where the there are these passages about like what it's like to grow up like Chinese American, but also having this like version of Chinese America or Chinese-ness um, sold to you on TV. Like those are the things that I thought would speak more to students because they spoke more to me. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one of the things I really like about teaching is just you You don't really have, You you don't really know what's going to resonate until you get there.
0: Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, it's it's kind of like how I feel about most of YouTube. Mm-hmm. I'm like, really? This unboxing thing for yeah. this, like, LOL toy that comes in this weird ovule capsule has, like, <laughs> 84 million views. And yeah. it, instead of being like, oh, this marks the end of civilization, I'm like, amazing. Yeah, <laughs> like, I totally agree. But why? And, yeah. like, that, no, that's definitely fac- fascinating. Um, So... It's weird, actually. Like, I, I think about teaching and I always think of, like, some white dude in, like, a tweed jacket with, like, elbow patches and all that stuff. But then when I really start thinking about it, it's like, you teach, Roxanne Gay teaches, mm-hmm. Julianne Escobedo-Shepard teaches, like, yeah. all these people who, are, who I, like, really stand for for their writing. And even, like, someone like Shea Serrano taught, like, science for nine yeah, yeah, years. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know. It's, like, kind of cool if if you, if it never occurred to you to pursue teaching And say you're talking to someone who's like, oh, like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. What would be an indicator that maybe teaching is actually right for you?
1: I think one thing about teaching is like, I didn't like teaching when I started. I actually really didn't like it um, because as a grad student, you're not really teaching your own classes. But then I think once you, once you grow comfortable with your own approach and you have your own kind of ideas that you want to impart, um, I mean, I think the thing that you need is just a sense of humility that the impact of your work will never really be that obvious to you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like,
0: or you're not going to see that like frisson of electricity where where you foist your tastes upon someone yeah, and they're totally. like, oh my God, I appreciate this accurately. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. mean,
1: I think that one of the things I think nowadays, and I'm going to sound like I'm a hundred years old, but. I think it's, there are just so many things we do day to day where we kind of get that instant gratification or that (laughs) instant, even the phrase instant gratification just makes me feel like a real old, but um, (laughs) I think that there's just,
0: Um, it's just called life. (laughs) Yeah, totally.
1: (laughs) But you know, like it's pretty easy there. We have metrics for quantifying so many, so many things that we do and sort of the impact they make. So I think with teaching, you just, you just have no idea what someone is going to do with something you said, you know, or a comment you make. And it's, I think that's the thing that you, you, have to, you have to want, you know, just sort of having that faith that whatever it is you're doing in the classroom may or may not affect someone, and that effect won't really ever be evident to you.
0: Oh yeah, weird. You know. So like you'll never be able to call which mustard seed is gonna sprout.
1: Right. And yeah. like
0: when or if and who and like how or yeah. what came of that. So I mean, you could argue that there is definitely like I mean, you have to be pretty generous to be a teacher, I feel. Like it it does speak to kind of like a lack of ego, much more so than you would think, I think. Um
1: yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't want to say, like, yeah, like, I have no I'm ego. I'm so selfless. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: you you definitely have an ego because you're a writer. Like, so right, you're yeah. just, like, right down the middle. Yeah,
1: and I teach, like, writing workshops, too. So, mm. um, but, yeah, I think in general, it's kind of like, you know, how, you know how the economist has no bylines? Yeah, like I, fi- I feel like that's just that's just a different species of writer. Yeah, but The Economist where, is also
0: weird. Where like The Economist, like definitely from the spellings, I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, you're British. But then it's like this extra thing of like, or are you Canadian? Because sometimes when The Economist reports on the world, I'm like, is this the world or is this just like a sphere that is floating in the universe somewhere else? Like, mm-hmm. I feel very disconnected from The Economist sometimes.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I just find it weird that as a writer, you could write for somewhere and not have a byline. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like if, if you were a writer and you're like, I don't really care about the credit. I just want to do the work. Then you should write for, then you'd be like dope at The Economist. You know what I mean?
0: (laughs) That is kind of the meanest thing to say to someone though. What do you mean? You
1: would be dope for The (laughs) (laughs) Economist. No, I just mean like, in terms of like, if, if that's, if that's, if that's really satisfying, then that's like a perfect place for you. And so, I think in terms of teaching, like, yeah, if you can, if you don't feel the need to always be right, mm. then like teaching is, is somewhere where you can kind of like work through that. You
0: know? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Are you, so I only know about academia, kind of like television shows, like kind of how I know about like law firms from television shows. Like, yeah, yeah. Are you on the tenure track? Are you tenured? Like, I don't know what any of these actually mean, like, yeah. but are you like what, what goes on with that?
1: I have tenure, okay, so what does that mean? That, that means you just can't fire you. Yeah, it it means basically that it'd be very difficult for you to lose your job. Like mm. something really catastrophic would have to happen to the institution um, for you to lose your job. Okay. Um, yeah, it means health when, insurance for life.
0: Do you make a lot of money teaching?
1: Um, how do you? What is a lot of money?
0: Um, I'm really rich because I'm a writer. <laughs> no, I mean, like, is it? money that is it commensurate with like other professions i mean obviously not like finance but if you're going to work at like tk company for like however many years
1: okay so i think the reason this is a really interesting question actually because when i was in when i was in college like i graduated in 1999 uh like 80 percent of my friends went to work in like corporate law or for consulting firms and so by the summer, they already had like really nice things. Mm. And I was just beginning this like 10 year path through graduate school and freelancing. So I didn't actually ever, I never got like a proper paycheck until, I don't know, like I was 30, right? Which, um, and and most people who enter into the world like are working from the age of, I don't know, like 22, 20, 23. So I think- I think I make more than I thought professors made, but I also think that I didn't make any money from like 20 to 30.
0: Same. (laughs) (laughs) Profoundly same, because I was an editorial assistant for a trillion years. Um, And I think that's like,
1: I think that's like really problematic, right? Just that we have, there's so many things where problematic, very academic term.
0: No, actually, it's a very de rigueur term for like the entire internet and the woke Olympics, but continue.
1: Why do you think that... How do you think that happened?
0: What do you mean? Problematic?
1: Yeah, because I was just actually talking to someone about this. Like, how do how does a term like problematic go from, like, the classroom to... To everyday? zeitgeisting? Yeah.
0: I don't actually know the etymology of how it became, like, hashtag problematic. Mm-hmm. That's actually fascinating because it was fairly recent. I mean, it's obviously in tandem with, again, the woke Olympics. And yeah. this like, whole thing of, like, um, everyone... Basically, like any like J.K. Rowling not being like intersectional totally, in yeah, is like yeah. problematic because and yeah. it's also definitely cut through with you love them, but they're problematic. Mm-hmm. Like you you like cape for them. However, they're problematic. Mm-hmm. It's not just like a cut and dry. Like this person is bad thing, which is interesting.
1: Yeah, that's, that's one of the weird things because I feel like academia feels kind of disconnected sometimes mm. um, by like, design.
0: Maybe you're the fulcrum. Maybe you're the <laughs> conduit.
1: Uh, But, you know, like terms like problematic, intersectional, even people using the term white supremacy to mean something more than just like a guy in a hood, like people use that term now to actually describe like structures of inequality, you know? Well,
0: actually, the thing that I find interesting that I feel like the hot take machine or I guess what blogging is now is shot through with a lot of incredibly academic language. And I know this because I went to a very... like, I <laughs> I majored in fashion at a four-year university at a state school. So, like, it's a lot of, like, very vaunted language. Mm. And I actually just yeah. thought it was, like, because a lot of writers went to, like, Ivy League schools. Like, and a lot of young, like, up-and-coming writers. But I don't know that that... Like, because I felt, like, when I started reading, like, this particular type of polysyllabic language, totally. because... Again, like, I'm perfectly proficient. I got a very good SAT verbal score. But I was like, wow, this is definitely, like, a demarcation or, like, a thing that is happening. Yeah. I think I think it—I literally, legit, think it's just people went to a bunch of good schools and now are
1: writing. Yeah, and it's cool that they just write the way they want to write.
0: Yeah. You know? But also, th- I think there's a lot more precision in the way things are being described now. And so I do think there is like a a little bit of leaning on institutional language.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like an interesting, it's an interesting way to see the power of ideas. No, for sure. Very like.
0: Communicable. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yes and no. I mean, this kind of goes to my next point or like this next portion of our podcast, but did you see that, um, that Instagram supercut where it's like everyone takes the, picture of the Tower of Pisa the same way where it looks like an ice cream cone and like everyone takes the same picture of like the Tory fell and like all this stuff and it sort of speaks to the incredibly flattened human experience of travel and how we're all essentially taking the same photo and sending it up to the cloud instead of just experiencing this moment and the marvel of world travel have you seen that no so it's just it's exactly what I'm saying it it feels very black mirror a lot Mm -hmm. of people are just kind of like ugh, yuck but and you know how also you you're a music writer. You know how like no writing about indie music right now and it's kind of weird. Like you can have like a perfume genius. Yeah. have a release and it's like sub 10k on YouTube and like Pitchfork kind of doesn't know what it's doing yeah, anymore yeah, yeah. and like and I was wondering like now that everything is so hyper quantified and experiences are so fleeting and fast what is the internet post-internet as far as like the internet was supposed to be this grand equalizer and is the post-internet zines <laughs> <laughs> and cassette tapes and like LPs?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I only have an answer for the last part because I feel like that's the only part, <laughs> the
0: that, part that, that, that I could like you. wrap my
1: head around, um, I mean, it does seem like there's more of an interest in material culture these days. Just there's so many magazines that are being produced at a time when we're being told that print culture is dead. You know, there's like, there's still a lot of interest in cassettes. And
0: cassettes are like so hot right now. Yeah.
1: And so I do feel like that's a reaction to just how unwieldy the internet is. Mm-hmm. Um, but and it,
0: unnavigable.
1: Yeah. It's interesting though, because I feel like, you know i'm 40 and i can remember it like i often think about how i i i appreciate that i remember what it was like before but i also grew up to some extent on the internet and appreciate what it is now you know what i mean like what was your first computer like growing up in a tech house um like everyone else it was like a pc clone so mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of computer it was, but it was just—I just remember the color of it. Yeah, it was like that weird kind of like Be- beige gray, yeah. you know. Um, America Online, you know, like pretty pretty generic mm-hmm. entry into the internet. But um, I just remember this my my high school debate partner, my dear friend Harish, one day was like, "What if in the future we had this box and you could just tell the box any song you wanted to hear?" Because like we were. We were really, like, dying not being able to hear these things that we could read about. And uh, and, and the box could just deliver this song to you. And I'm like, Harish, that's the craziest shit I've ever heard in my life. Like, that would be terrible. Like, that's impossible. And and that's the world we now live in, you know? And so it's interesting to remember what it was like to fantasize about things that are now a reality. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that it's, like, it, I don't know, like, it doesn't necessarily feel like this great this, like, incredible utopia that, um, that was... <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, I like having that perspective, you know? I mean, I, Same. You probably feel the same, right? Yeah.
0: I can't believe you just called me 40. But... <laughs> no, I definitely do. Like, we are close enough in age where I do remember how eventized it was when someone got a CD that you wanted to listen to and you had to physically go to someone's house and listen to it. But similarly, like, the tactile experience of you know, magazines and things like that are so wonderful. And actually, the the amount of time you spent, like, reading bylines or, Mm -hmm. like, reading gutter credits or, like, noticing little things, like, I actually do miss that part of absorption. Like, our metabolisms are so fast right now that I just feel like this dilated shoot. yeah, And, like, things (laughs) just, like, fly in and fly out. And I don't know, it's just... I am definitely getting to a point, I think, again, because I'm old and my bones ache, but I'm slowing down deliberately, and I kind of can't help but wonder if people who aren't as old as me are also doing it. Because I, I feel it almost, like, I don't know, but actually...
1: Do you still buy, like, magazines? and
0: I do buy magazines. Actually, you know, the, th- the most sort of, like ownership thing i've been doing lately that surprises me is i've been buying books again mm-hmm. and i definitely have that sense of what you were saying about like even if i have the cd i'm gonna buy the the i was about to call it a long player but
1: um <laughs> let's, let's bring that back
0: yeah to my vinyl is because sometimes i just want the book version because it's such a different experience like kindling that shit
1: yeah i felt that way a lot right before i published a book mm. i thought i need to send sort of good vibes back in the universe and start like <laughs> buying books again. I'm going
0: to pay it forward, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It forward. Um, so actually I asked you to bring a few magazines that you like. And this was based on a, an article of yours that I read in the New Yorker about the face and how cool that was and how like almost exotic it was because it was British and it was still super punk rock. And it was kind of like that. The, the really nice thing about magazines when we were growing up is it was kind of before magazines were a thing. Thing or as it was mm-hmm. becoming a thing and so there were there were still so many pirate ships out there like Definitely. that were still that still had a budget yeah. you know um so what magazines did you bring
1: um so most of my magazines are actually in california but i, I just <laughs> brought a few that i that have made the move okay over the past 10 years is uh, that an
0: old school classic details like circa like
1: yeah bill cunningham so this is like The details, July 92 music issue. Holy smokes. With uh, Anthony Kiedis and Lady Mascure on the cover. Hell
0: yeah, that's such a tie. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man, he was such a dreamboat. Yeah. One of the original dreamboats.
1: Yeah, and I actually had this, I had this when I was a kid, but I just bought it again because I saw it at a store. Yeah,
0: I did that with a lot of sassies recently to where I was just like, why am I making like a tinderbox of my house? But
1: did you ever, um, do you know about dirt?
0: Of course. The Spike Jones, yeah, like yeah, of yeah. course, yeah, totally. I
1: have an issue in my office at school, and I always look at it, just thinking, like, what a fucking weird thing this is.
0: That's the thing about. Mag- Do you want to
1: explain where it is? Because, like,
0: yeah, it was it was Spike Jones. He yeah. had a magazine. It was like skate culture, but it also just was like pop culture, and it kind of was one of the first sort of um, magazines that took. One purview, but like broadened it mm. and it was kind of and made it kind of like a lifestyle magazine. Yeah. And so you had like things that could be counted almost as fashion editorials, but they were not at all fashion editorials that you would have ever seen before. And it was skate, but like it was also just so cool that you really like I didn't like I never bought dirt and it actually is a couple years older than I am, Mm -hmm. but definitely when sassy came out and that was just like hand in hand, like the sister publication to dirt. I was like, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, it almost felt like a pamphlet or a legend to a certain social group. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this was like the, it kind of predated like the taxonomical stuff. I don't know. It was just such a voyeuristic way in. And I really, really love that. Um, yeah. So say more things.
1: <laughs> I also brought, um, I brought an issue oh of the face.
0: God. Yeah. But so, is that how early? Sorry. I'm distracted. This is from
1: uh, 94.
0: Amazing.
1: What blurs th- on the cover.
0: Amazing band. Yeah. What, what did you like about these magazines?
1: I think I just like that I didn't understand what most of the the stuff going on in the magazine was like, like, I don't remember how I got dirt. I think I think it was because sassy was so cool. And um, dirt was I think it was literally called like sassy for guys. Right. And I just remember I had this issue with Crispin Glover on the cover. Hilarious. And I had no idea who he was. And I read the story and I still had no idea like <laughs> why he was on the cover of magazine. But Because I liked everything else in the magazine, I thought, like, I should figure out, like, who this guy is, you know?
0: I feel like magazines for a lot of us—I think you mentioned this earlier—is, like, the cool older brother or cool older sister that Mm -hmm. kind of had a lot to do with contouring your tastes and, like— Telling you, like, again, like, what you're t- saying right now, which is, that, like, this is related to this, and mm-hmm. so you should, like, these things.
1: Totally, yeah. Like, the,
0: the weird transitive property of, like, yeah. having these things be together. Um, and actually, the thing that I really, makes me really sad about the state of magazines right now and just the fact that these little time capsules don't really exist in this way is that, like... You have a lot of information and you have a lot of the same information comprising the top, I don't know, 20% of like whatever queries that you plug in for certain like catchphrases or keywords. And then that becomes like, you know, the scum of what you know. Mm -hmm. And that becomes like really kind of um, same for a whole swath of people. And they don't necessarily have that like excitement about having discovered this thing because it was always really accessible and they don't. Have that person who's like acting as a sherpa to be like, and then this is also cool, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. and so <laughs> I, actually I keep thinking about it in terms of like, um, you know what a scoby is? It's like the mother. It's like it, it's like the thing that makes the kombucha. It's the thing that oh, makes yeah, like yeah, the yogurt yeah, yeah, yeah. culture okay. or like the sourdough bread. There's not enough like scobies. In the world that like breed like these organic sort of knowledge bases into like other things. And like magazines, I f- feel like really was that. In fact, like you're holding issue number two of Giant Robot, which blows my mind.
1: I mean, and this was Issue like, number
0: one. Holy shit.
1: This was like life changing.
0: Yeah, Giant Robot is life changing. Yeah. Tell, tell us about Giant Robot.
1: Um, Giant Robot was this, it started off just as a zine that these two guys, uh, Eric Nakamura and Martin Wong, did in, um, I guess it was in LA in the mid 90s. And then they just sort of hustled it into, it was never a glossy magazine, but it was like an actual magazine for a while. And the coolest thing about it was just, I think growing up as an Asian American, not really seeing people like in the culture doing stuff. Um, I don't know, like they were just these two guys who had really interesting taste. And the cool thing was that they never really tried to define what it meant to make an Asian American publication. Like there was no.
0: Explicitness about it. Yeah. There's
1: like no mission statement. There was it it wasn't really that like self-aware in that way. But it was sort of like whatever they covered just became part of their world.
0: They weren't self-aware in that way, but they were supremely secure yeah,
1: yeah, in what totally. position
0: that they held. And actually Giant Robot to me too was very formative because it was Asians being really cool Yeah, without that much overt effort.
1: Totally. Yeah, And
0: that was like a flavor of coolness that really, to me, felt outside of my reach because at a certain point, like growing up, I think I conflated coolness with like, You know, Western American culture. Totally, yeah. Oh, totally. Like, in the same way that, like, a a friend of mine recently said to me, she's Persian or Iranian, and she was like, Oh, I always equated being bad or breaking rules with being American. Mm. And so, like, I kind of had that same thing, but like, this was like, Giant Robot was about, like, artistry and this like amazing asian agency yeah where they like these people were just making art and like that blew my mind
1: it was so cool i mean i i remember you know like the question you asked earlier about like the first first people i like really stand for Mm -hmm. like i do feel like there's this weekend where i was like on this (laughs) panel in davis and i met the two dudes from giant robot and they're hanging out with their artist friend, Dave, who turned out to be like David Cho. and Yeah,
0: problematic like, fave. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I was like, you guys should just come to Berkeley and hang out at my apartment. And they're like, let's go. And it was just this magical weekend where I'm like, these guys just do whatever they want. Wait, they went?
0: You guys, yeah. guys hung out?
1: Yeah. <gasps> Have and you it was written like, about this? No, but it was like, uh, it was.
0: What the fuck, man? You should write about this. We need a zine and you should write about this.
1: Yeah, well, let's do it.
0: Because this, uh, I would is,
1: totally, this
0: is so cool.
1: And it was like, uh, in my mind, I was just like, I can't believe these guys want to hang out with me. You know, I am just some random college kid who makes a zine called Hella. you know, like, <laughs> which like nobody read. <laughs> but so it was like, yeah, it was just and uh, it was just a really it was incredible. And I remember Eric said to me something like he made a film and he said, you know in life as long as you d- if you try to do something really big that you don't think you can do like it will change your life forever regardless of whether it's good or not and i was that that sort of became this thing that just kind of drove me through the next few years you know just thinking about how these guys had just hustled the zine into this thing that had you know they created their own culture around them and it was just it was just super inspiring
0: and then it became a store and then yeah, yeah everything um it that kind of like calls me back to what you were saying about being a teacher and never knowing which mustard seed will like
1: fruit. Oh, totally. Yeah.
0: Because I wonder if he remembers it. Yeah. I you, don't know. The, the thing <laughs> that, like, changed your life and became your North. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean maybe, the, you know, the thing that I really love about magazines, especially like punk rock magazines that feel Zeni, but aren't like I have the first issue of lucky peach here. Mm. I have an issue of ego trip here.
1: Oh man. I know
0: the arrogant voice of musical truth. And this is, I mean, ego trip is amazing. And if you don't know about it, that, that makes me sad because, here is a magazine where you have everyone like their reviews section is like just everyone you have like mal writing a yeah. review you have like miss info writing a totally, review yeah. you have like riggs morales who now like does all the anr at, like atlantic wrote a little tiny review like dave Bree, dave tomkins like all these people and they're all in one place and like that's and obviously the internet has that but i do and nobody goes through the front door of the internet and like expects like this finite little like kiddie pool cul-de-sac of things to be in one place but like there is such a pleasure in all of this being in one place Mm -hmm. like they have you know this is like the dedication to like biggie smalls because this is like right when he died and there's like three articles on him and like one is even from like i believe lost tapes that like gabe alvarez had in his mom's basement or something like i don't know like if if the mechanism that drives how fast everything is is this like relentless force like you don't have this level of attention or intention or like depth on like any topic and I feel like magazines in their heyday really was great I mean they have like Scarface interviewing I think that like someone from helmet and it's like
1: they have, have a Q&A a, a with Punky, Punky Brewster. Fucking Brewster.
0: And like actually the even like the Punky Brewster thing is that like because Soleil Moonfry, the actor who plays Punky Brew- Brewster is like really good friends with Danny Boy from like House of Pain. So like That's wild. That's just wild. Like that's and wild. and that's the thing it's like w- like knowing about this magazine lets me know mm-hmm. the bonus features of how things came about and there's so much like context. Yeah. And like the lack of that in the internet sometimes does make me really, really sad. Um, so moving on, we're both huge fans of
1: <laughs> magazines. Um, I also just feel like they they weren't necessarily aspiring to do things. I mean, it's just sort of a pre-viral moment. Yes, where, and it's
0: pre-endgame moment. Yeah. It's pre-people branding themselves like crazy yeah. moment. And like, maybe we just sound like demented.
1: Even though they were. like They were branding themselves yeah, but it in wasn't, a way that...
0: You didn't really see... You didn't see where it was going the yeah. same way. And the ways in which you did it, it's, like, it's not like this metric of like, they're doing this thing and now AdSense is going to pay them a bunch of money at YouTube right. or like Instagram is going to verify them. It's like, it was a m- way more windy way to get there. Like the, yeah. the rails aren't the same rails.
1: Yeah, I feel like they were just doing it to be able to continue doing it yeah. rather than doing it in order to like parlay it into something else. Totally. So you...
0: Work with the Asian American Writers Workshop. What do they do?
1: It's uh, it's like the nation's largest nonprofit devoted to Asian American literature. So we do a lot of events. Um, We have a couple publications, um, which I think are really excellent. Uh, One of them is sort of about um, like local, kind of like micro blogging around New York City, looking at issues of gentrification. You know, Chinatown is is constantly changing, although it changes at a totally different rhythm than the rest of New York. Mm. Um, I don't know, it's a really great space. It's it's a really, it's the kind of thing that I that I think if I had known something like this existed when I was younger, it would have really changed my path or maybe defined it more.
0: And so in in how, like just because knowing that you have like a context that you can belong to or like yeah, just- Yeah,
1: like the, um, the executive director, Ken Chen, like we actually grew up in the same town going to the same comic book stores, like doing all the same stuff, but we didn't know each other as kids. And I think if we both talk about like how, if we had known that there were these literary communities or like people who are just interested in this shit, you know, that, that's really, that changes everything. You know, just knowing that you're not the only person who sees things um, from this, from this perspective.
0: No, totally. It it actually, it's funny, like the Asian American writers workshop, like I only found out about you a guys a couple years ago because ashok as an A.K. Yeah, yeah. Dapwell, interviewed me and i was like huh what is this and then i started reading and i was like oh this makes me feel less lonely <laughs> it's just like kind of this like very profound and stirring moment um do you think you have a second coming of age as an asian writer and creator like where you come into your asianness like it's not just about like you know, I'm a comedian. When will Jewish people know who I am? But more this, like, I'm a comedian. I'm Asian. What does that mean for me in terms of, like, I don't know, like, moving a conversation or, like, being, like, an ethical Asian comedian? I don't know. Like, I feel that I'm kind of coming into my Asian-ness, like, over the past, like, maybe five years. Oh. And I feel like that's kind of late, but it's been the most gratifying and like, I'm so like touched by it.
1: What do you think? What changed for you?
0: I think it's that I really, really figured out too, way, way, way too late. That life is not a meritocracy, uh-huh. and it wasn't just that, like, oh, other people have a leg up, or like, it's why? Why do these cis white men have things I don't? It was more that, like, I waited for so long for someone to pick me. Mm-hmm. Like, you get to write a book now, or like, you can have this, or like, you you should be a novelist, like, yeah, or 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 you can be a poet. Like, nobody ever said these things to me, and I think that like, once I started experimenting in things. And actually someone um, act, um, just talked about, like, how bold and also almost, like, untoward and rude it is to just, like, move your elbows so much and declare yourself to, like, write, be an author. Like, you're going to write a whole book and other people are going to read it. Like, uh, that never occurred to me to do because I, I like, I waited for someone to, to be like, here's a U-shaped mm-hmm, hole. Now you come mm-hmm. into here. And so when I started first writing different things and like doing television and like even like writing the Khaled book or like now that I'm doing um, YA, I've just been received by like Asians in this like really unquestioning way. Mm -hmm. And it didn't make me feel like, oh, they just fuck with me because of melanin. It was just like like a very quiet but very insistent like, oh, oh, we root for you. Mm -hmm. And I didn't. And I think like growing up so self-conscious and afraid and just trying to be like cool and all this shit and like being that Asian kid who like if I saw another Asian kid, like I might do a little nod, but I'm really not trying to talk to you, you know, that person. <laughs> right. I was like, you know, like I threw away so much of my identity growing up and then to be reclaimed like so unquestioningly is just like, like really beautiful. And, and I'm so grateful and I didn't know it would feel this way. That's really beautiful it's it's like i really and so when i write i'm like okay this kid's asian and like yeah. okay oh this other kid is like you know half this and half this and it's like two swirls that like no actor mm-hmm. is and you're going to have a casting nightmare and you know fan army's going to hate you <laughs> like and i'm i'm f- i'm fine to have those things be my work yeah. because i do feel like there is like a not a moral obligation but just like a community based obligation that I should keep pushing pushing and exploring. And so by that, like, I don't think I was in this headspace until fairly recently as a creator.
1: It's really interesting. I mean, I think, I mean, it's interesting because you've been surrounded by people like, you know, like Mao or Minya or like, you know, Phil or Don, like people who are clearly also in this space where like Sarah you know, yeah. Sarah Honda shout out.
0: Yeah, um, S K. Yeah, but we were, but sometimes we were so. But sometimes we were, and you know, Minya and I have talked about this. We were like, alone but together.
1: Yeah, yeah. I see. I, I see it. I always saw it from the outside more as like kind of the giant robot thing, where you just sort of like, you you're making the road by walking, right? You're just sort of like doing this, and it may not be, like, central to how you view the work, but it's very central to, like, how people are going to, like, be moved by the work, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think I thought about this a lot in in college, I think, because I was involved in a lot of, um, um, like, political stuff on campus. And so, like, I think I always aspired to do little more than write for, like, the local Asian-American newspaper in San Francisco called Asian Week. Like, I just thought if I could do that kind of work, that would be great. Um, and I think it's because I didn't allow myself to think that I would ever write for anything bigger than that, you know, just because I didn't see people who who were able to do that. And I mean, it's weird, but I do feel like I've always had this chip on my shoulder as a lot of people in our positions have, but it's been something that doesn't necessarily surface maybe as much. Um, and I think it's just because I'm also older, so I don't like... I don't feel as comfortable writing about in first person and stuff. Oh,
0: okay. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. It's, it's kind of weird because I think as a kid, I just never read Asian people writing the first person, you know? So like, I just never thought that that was our lane. Mm. And, but I remember, and I'm pretty sure I'm kind of butchering this memory, but (laughs) I remember once hearing the story about how when my dad moved to New York in the seventies, like he subscribed to the New Yorker. And he, he like canceled his subscription after a week. Cause he's like, I don't understand any of this shit. He's you like, know?
0: I don't need to read 1200 words on the, or 12,000 <laughs> words on the loot. <laughs> yeah.
1: He's like, I really don't, he's like, this isn't really for me, you know? And so I think just that idea that, that like the words you put out in the world could make someone feel that way has always kind of motivated me in this, in this perverse way. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Just that, that, um, like I could do this thing now that once made him feel away. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Um
0: that's you know that's I think if my parents could read my work it would change everything. Mhm. I would feel differently about them dying. I would feel differently about just how to convince them that they did like a decent job. You know what I mean? Because it's like a really hard thing to like let your parents off the hook mm-hmm. without the gratification of them being able to know your work. You know, cause like for them, I think that so they, your
1: parents understand what you do. No, none of it.
0: They, they, they try really hard, I think, or, or, I'm proud of how far they've come, is I think the way I would put but it. But they
1: don't understand, like, they, they can see you on a television. They can, like, hold a book or a magazine. So they, but they don't understand just how that works, or?
0: I think that, okay. So you talked about this a little bit um, in a podcast interview that your parents, and you spoke about this earlier, wanted to see you in an upwardly mobile job, not because of the t- tiger parent status thing, but because in science or math, there's a right or wrong answer. And if you can deliver the right answer, you're good. Similarly, in an interview in GQ with Manny Jacinto, um, that, the actor in The Good Place, Kevin Wen says that his mom wanted a similar thing for him because she, quote, just wanted the world to be fair to you
1: mm.
0: or fair for you, mm-hmm. rather. And I guess it's like that. It's like my mom's my parents see what I do and they're they're still like wow, like every decision and every unit of output you make is is still subject to interpretation mm-hmm. and it's right. never yeah. just going to be this like pat right thing. Yeah. Why would you why would you keep doing that road? Like I think they see me and they're just like why do you make life so so hard? Like we've suffered so much. Like we still work like they both work in restaurants and they're, they, you know, they're, they're harrowing, like just, you know, like backbreaking jobs. And they're like, why, do, why do you make your life so hard also? Mm-hmm. And so like, I don't think that that's a thing that they can accept or just like, or kind of like be restful about.
1: Yeah. I can, I feel that. Cause I think that I think for my parents, because occasionally, like, I'll write about them, or I'll write about like my grandparents or something. And in my mind, I'm sort of like I'm telling our story. Like, our story is now part. It's like indelibly in the universe Mm. now. Like, like we deserve to be part of the story too. But from my parents' kind of generic immigrant experience or perspective, it's like just keep your head down. Like, don't call attention to like what (laughs) we're doing. Like,
0: don't air the laundry. Yeah, Yeah, and so
1: even though I think of what I do is sort of a tribute to them or like in their name in some weird way. Of course. And it's like funny to say that because I basically like, like review records, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, there's still some way in which I think, I mean, I have like a larger thing about like how all of my writing is like, has been practiced, like write this thing that will be more meaningful to (laughs) me someday. But um, yeah, they don't really see it that way. They just see it more as like, Oh, you have this like stable position They don't see it as like you were bringing some sort of like honor or like mystique to our our lineage. You know, the the
0: funny thing is, I do think I take some solace in the fact that, like, despite the language barrier not being such an issue for you guys, that we're both totally misunderstood (laughs) by our (laughs) parents. So um, do you feel that you've suffered heartache because of the interpretive nature of this job? Or do you have, like, any experience where you're like, man, like, that's still a sore spot for me? You mean... Um, writing.
1: Probably more so teaching than writing. Really? Yeah. I mean, I think with writing, like, by the time something is published, I feel like I just don't want to think about it anymore. And Fiend, yeah, totally. Yeah, you know, like, that's why social media, like, when when writing before social media you would just sort of send something into the ether and then maybe <laughs> and then mic drop yeah yeah and then maybe a friend would say like oh i read that thing or or
0: even better somebody would write into the magazine yeah. and be like analog comment <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: on this piece of writing you did
1: whereas now it's just it's sort of inevitable that you're just going to get the feedback within a couple days or mm-hmm. minutes and um but by then, I've, I think i am just moved on to something else. Okay. I think with teaching, I definitely have those moments where I I wish I could, you know, like I, I wish I could like teach a student again, you know, or I sure. wish I wish I could, um, I wish I hadn't like made the terrible joke that was like, like some bad, like Michael Scott type comment in class <laughs> or something, you know, like, so there's definitely, I think it's it's more of that just because teaching is this ephemeral thing. Like nobody is, nobody's like live tweeting a class. Like there's no record of what you did in that class. And so there's more pressure, I feel, to like actually make it count and make it more meaningful.
0: It's like a performance. Yeah. Like a live one. How would you feel if Zeke wanted to be a writer? Uh,
1: I don't know. Like I without mean... without the <laughs>
0: like steady job of like being also a professor. I just like dad, I just want to dance. Like <laughs>
1: He's actually a very, he's actually very, he's not into dancing at all, but he's really into <laughs> like fake falling. Um, yeah, that'd be cool. I mean, I have no real, it's weird because I think, I often think about how like my parents and I grew up in America simultaneously. Mm, you know what I mean? Like sure. we, were, we we're becoming acculturated together. And so there are certain kind of, there's a certain kind of like immigrant detachment or like confusion about things that... I'm not going to have, presumably. Sure. You know, you know what I mean? And so I don't really know what that relationship is going to be like. Like, I can't really model my relationship with my son on my relationship with my parents because they had no idea, like, how to navigate American culture, you know? Like, they were doing it as I was doing it, so.
0: Also, that's cute because I can see you being like, no, I know all the things. and see you being like, dude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> These modalities are so defunct. Yeah. Is it trippy being a dad?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it is insofar as I just don't think I'll ever really be able to. Um, I mean, I think my my entire career has been really like I've I've been very lucky many different in many different points along the way. And I think one way in which I've been kind of lucky is that my parents have been really supportive and they've never really pressured me to do anything. Right. Instead, they've been really encouraging about like um, like helping me financially whenever I needed help. And I just want to be able to provide that for him. And I think that'll be, you know, like if I could do that, that'd be cool.
0: Right on. Thank you for coming.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: This was fun also super deep.
1: Yeah, it got it got He's really serious there at the end. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. Hey cool job is recorded at Red Bull Arts New York. Special thanks to Hassan Insane, Joseph Hazen, Max Wolf, and the song you hear is I'm in love with my life by Phases.